0: Welcome to Buildings and Beyond.
1: The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment
0: by focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health.
1: I'm Rob Aldrich.
0: And I'm Kelly Westby. I am so glad you have decided to tune in to Buildings and Beyond this week because this applies to basically everyone. If you ever cook in your home, I think you'll find this interesting. We are actually going to take a page from Simon Sinek's book and we are starting with why they
1: they should care because the the idea is that when you cook, it's basically one of the activities that you do that emits the most contaminants into into your home and by, by contaminants, there are some pretty straightforward ones. Like there's lots of water vapor when you're cooking. And um, if you don't want to have condensation on your windows in the winter, for example, or you don't want to make your house get too humid so you might get some mold growth, you want to control the humidity levels. And it's a good idea to vent the moisture from cooking to outside. Um, then you have to think about odors. And, of course, you know, some odors are good when, when you're cooking, right? The, the odor is what makes, you know, home cooking worthwhile sometimes and what make, makes food taste nice and everything. But if you've been frying fish one day, maybe you don't want the smell of fried fish in your house for the next few days. Um, <laughs> right. And the last thing is, is, is more from a health perspective, which is that aside from the moisture, moisture and odor issues, um... There are contaminants emitted when, when you cook that can actually impact your health. One of the primary ones is small particles, and they come from either the burning of natural gas, if you're using a gas cooktop, or the cooking process itself. Um, and then there are things like oxides of nitrogen that also are emitted from, uh, from gas burners. And those contaminants are ones that, if they get to a high enough concentration... Um, can have some health impacts, so there's a there's a there's a good health reason for venting most of those things to outside uh, and so it's it's a combination of you want to control moisture in your home, you want to control odors in your home, and there's uh, there's a health uh, impact also. and I'm not saying that you should cook. I personally love cooking, and everybody should cook. I think a home cooked meal is probably the healthiest way to 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 feed yourself, but we should do it with an awareness that it's it's a good idea to control what we do when we're cooking. And effectively, the best way to do it is to, is to vent some of these things to outside. So, that's the, the, the rationale for why you would vent a kitchen ever. And if you've ever been in a commercial kitchen, you'll see that they have enormous range hoods with huge amounts of flow, and they're physically large, and they have gigantic makeup air systems. And they, if you're cooking all the time, they make a huge effort to vent the cooking to, to outside. Um, Of course, we cook less in our homes, but the the principles behind it are the same. They're for the same reason. It's about controlling the moisture, odor, and some of these contaminants that can have health impacts.
0: Now, Ian Walker, who you just heard, is a scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, LBNL. He works as a building scientist and consultant, conducting research on energy use, ventilation, moisture, performance simulation, and commissioning diagnostic issues in residential buildings. I encourage you to go to the show notes and look at the link to LBNL's website. It turns out Ian has been doing ventilation research papers dating back to 1990. Whether you cook once in a while or you cook all the time, Whether you live in an apartment or a house, whether you have no renovation budget or unlimited, stay tuned. There will be something in this episode for you. I'll let Ian give you a little background and lay the groundwork for you, so we're going to jump right in.
1: Kitchen ventilation is not a new thing, right? It's been around for a long, long time. But it's only recently that we've, uh, I would say, done anything about it in, in a way where we could actually put some numbers to it. And by that I mean... Kitchen rangers have been used, and just you know, simple vents in kitchens have been around for thousands of years. But actual you know, kitchen ranges with a fan in them have been around for a while. But how good are they, and how, how much of the contaminants they capture has, has been something that hasn't really been studied until recently. And what we were really looking for was a way to figure out how well these devices work with a with longer-term goal of maybe we could make them work better, even though they moved less air, for example, because there surely is an energy penalty just in the fan power and also heating and cooling all that air that you're exhausting, right? So that's why we wanted to, like, actually put some numbers on how well uh, range hoods work and try and figure out is there something about their geometry or the amount of airflow that makes some work better and some not and so on.
0: Great, yeah. And and, um, we're mostly... The research is looking at single-family or low-rise multifamily.
1: Well, uh, not, I wouldn't say necessarily, no. I, I, think, I think everybody's kitchen should get some good ventilation. So I wouldn't restrict <laughs> it to... Right. Well, <laughs> right. Uh, and, but you raise a, a good point, which is it's easier in some buildings than others, right? In a, in a house... Um, having an exhaust fan in your kitchen is not too difficult to conceive of, right? Maybe you have to cut a hole in the wall or maybe in the ceiling, if you can go out through the ceiling, put some ducting in, seems pretty straightforward. But in a high-rise building, it's it can be a little trickier. Um, often high-rise architecture is much more sensitive to having lots of holes in the wall. And if you've got many, many stories all stacked up on top of each other. You've got to find room for all that ducting. And it, and it does get a little more complex from an engineering perspective, but not impossible.
0: So now, say I'm a homeowner and I, maybe I don't have any renovation budget, but what should I think about when I go to cook my dinner tonight?
1: Well, there's some simple things you can do if, if you're not going to remodel your kitchen and replace the range hood. Um, the first thing is, you should you should know if your range hood vents to outside. That's the first question. There there are many hoods over cooktops that just blow the air back into the kitchen, and they're not particularly effective at at doing anything for controlling the the things I just talked about. As you imagine, they just blow the moisture straight back in. Um, they don't do much for removing things like particles, oxides of nitrogen, and they. Um, don't control odour as much, they often will have a grease filter in, right, that you've probably seen these sort of metal things. If you look underneath your hood, you'll see this sort of metal grate. And so it might stop some of the grease getting circulated in the kitchen, but for the other stuff, it doesn't do much. So first of all, you need to have something that vents the outside. If it's just blowing back and greasing your forehead, then I'm amb- ambivalent about whether you use it or not. It's totally up to you, but I don't think it's doing very much. Um, so long as it vents the outside, the first thing is to turn it on. And even the very, very worst hood... Um, is going to be better than not using it. So e- even if you think you have a, a bad one, try using right. it. The next thing is, um, just if we're talking now about um, a, cook, a cooktop that's up against the wall um, with, a, with a hood above it also mounted on the wall, they always do better at capturing from the burners at the back than the front. So if you can cook on the back burners, um, it's going to be way better. Of course, that's also the most awkward way to cook, and so most people cook on the front burners for convenience, and so it's it's always going to be a personal trade-off, but certainly using the back burners is going to be better for your uh, range hood for getting it to uh, to capture what's on the cooktop. So even if you do nothing in your kitchen, you can at least turn it on and cook on the back burners, and, and that's, that's a big step forward.
0: Awesome. That's great. That's great advice. And then uh, I guess taking the next step, if I've maybe convinced my partner that we should Decide to renovate our kitchen, and uh, you know we we maybe have some renovation budget now. Uh, what should we look at, or what should we talk to our builder about?
1: So here you're talking about how do I pick my new range hood effectively? And there's there's a couple of things you can do that uh, when when you're you know browsing through catalogs or or you're at the hardware store looking at these things. Uh, one is to simply look at the the physical geometry of the hood and the key thing is does it come out far enough from the wall to cover all the burners and basically the further out from the wall it comes the more coverage it has generally speaking the the better it will perform and this is just a simple sort of common sense exercise if you imagine the the hot air and the hot plume that's coming off your cooking um it, it, it basically is going upwards and if the hood doesn't come out and cover the uh that that part of the cooktop, you can imagine that sort of uh, hot air and plume and, and all the and all the moisture and everything. It just goes in the kitchen, doesn't get captured. It's sort of a straightforward um, geometry thing. So if you can pick one that's larger that that covers more of the cooktop area, that's better. The other thing is deciding what what height to mount it at, um, and. You would, you might think, well, the lower I get, the better, right? But that's not always true. There's sort of a, a range of, of mounting heights where we get reasonable performance. Um, but you're often going to be restricted by the cabinets that you choose, also. And there are there are stock cabinet sizes that kind of limit your options there if you're remodeling. But we usually want to aim for um, a height above the, the cooktop of something like 24 to Thirty inches, if you will, that's sort of measuring to the bottom of the of the hood, and it turns out that most modern kitchens with typical cabinetry um, they're going to have uh, something in that sort of range if you if you're using a microwave device though that that's kind of different. Um, the ones with the built-in microwave tend to be mounted lower for starters, and some of that's simply because they are physically deeper top to bottom, right? If you're mounting them under the same cabinet in your kitchen, it comes down lower. Um, They also um, tend to not stick out very far, and that means that they don't have the greatest performance, honestly. Um, And also, they tend to suck air not just from underneath, where the cooking is happening, but they often have vents around the top and the sides. And... That's what I would call more like general kitchen ventilation. So they are exhausting air, but it's from the kitchen. It's not from directly over the cooking, so they're less effective in that sense. So these m- microwave devices, sure, you free up some counter space, but they are less effective as exhaust hoods for, for your cooking. Although I realize they're popular and people like them, so I would not say never install one, but uh, you should understand that it's not going to be quite as good as one that doesn't have a microwave stuck in it.
0: Just consider your alternatives in that case.
1: Right. And the, the, the last thing is that um, there are some ratings for hoods um, that are put out by an organization called the Home Ventilating Institute, or HVI. And anyone can go to hvi.org and, you know, look at their ratings. And one of the key aspects of the ratings is to look at the, uh, the sound level, how noisy they are, because in our research we found that, as you can imagine, if, if a range is too noisy people use it less, particularly in a, in a modern kitchen, which has no wall between you and the dining room or living room, like most modern homes are, have this open plan layout, and a ferociously loud range hood is, you, you can't use it if you're trying to watch television or, or the family's trying to eat and have a conversation or something, it doesn't work, right? So you can try and look for, for quieter hoods. And um, in the future, those ratings are gonna become a bit more advanced. And what they're going to do is they're going to start including something that um, we're probably going to talk about for a couple of minutes here, which is something called capture efficiency, which, which is a rating for how well the cooking uh, contaminants are captured and, and exhausted by the device. That's not available yet, but a year from now when you're shopping, you should be able to pick a, a higher capture efficiency rated device also for uh, exhausting your kitchen.
0: Great. And can you dive into that a little bit? You've been doing some research on um, what the capture efficiency is of, of current range hoods. Uh, what does that look like from what you've seen in the market now?
1: Sure. So the, um, when we, I, maybe I should define what we mean by capture efficiency first. Basically, what capture efficiency is about Great. is when you're emitting stuff from your cooking – what fraction of that gets sucked into the range hood and blown directly to outside? So a a poor range hood might, say, only capture a third of all those cooking contaminants, and its capture efficiency would be 33%, or about a third. Um, A very good range hood might capture 80 or 90%. So almost all of the cooking contaminants get sucked into the range hood, and blown outside. And so capture efficiency is that rating that says how much of what I'm emitting from my cooking uh, gets blown outside. And there's a, we've done lots of experiments both in the laboratory at LBNL and also going out to people's homes and testing. And there's a huge range of performance for capture efficiency. And I touched on some of this earlier. It depends a bit on the geometry, you know, how, you know, the physical dimensions of the hood in terms of how well it actually covers the cooktop. But as As your listeners might imagine um often you have a, a switch that that changes the fan speed on 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 your hood, and as you increase the fan speed and more and more air flows through it, the capture efficiency goes up, so you get the best capture efficiency at the highest flow rate. Unfortunately, that also tends to be the noisiest way to operate it, so there 's going to be a trade off in your kitchen right about how much noise can I stand? Um, Generally, the higher speed, the higher the airflow, the greater the noise, and and the better you will capture things. And and at at lower speeds, maybe you can still carry on a conversation, but it's not capturing so well. And we've developed basically a standardized test method for this that is going to be adopted by HVI and other organizations so that everybody tests the same way, so that you know, we standardize on things like what is the heat output of the burner that you're looking at and what method do you use to measure this capture efficiency? And we're, we're using uh, a tracer gas uh, system for doing this. But it's all in a very standardized, very controlled way. So all the test labs will get the same result if they test the same device in the same way. It's all, it's all been engineered out to be very, very consistent. And there's several other test labs in the country that have been uh, trying out this test method and also some uh, European test labs also, because we think that this uh, way of rating for capture efficiency will probably find its way into international standards as, as well as being he- used here in the U.S.
0: That's great. So you're working on that now, um, but can you talk a little bit about some of the other things that we can look for? Uh, you know, if I'm going to buy my range hood tomorrow, you, you spoke about noise and um, flow rate. Can you... You know, what would you prescribe if I was going out and looking to pick something tomorrow?
1: If, if you're picking something tomorrow, there's sort of a minimum flow rate below which you're, the, the devices don't work particularly well. And, and, and this minimum, some minimum flow rates are actually put into ventilation standards. For example, uh, the U.S. national standard for ventilation says that the minimum flow rate should be 100 cubic feet per minute. As a minimum flow rate. So if you're looking at the flows that you're going to get for your range hood, you want to at least beat that minimum. Um, Of course, that's the minimum. You can always do better. And if it was me picking a flow, I'd want to have at least 150, maybe 200 CFM as sort of the minimum flow rating that I would operate it at. It's a little complicated by the fact that almost all range hoods have a switch that lets you change the speed and change the flow. Right, And on the very lowest flow, they might not be having that 100 CFM, but you probably get that on the medium. And then on the high flow rate, you get up to 150 or 200 for a typical device. So you know, there's always going to be a range of flows. At the, at the more extreme end, though, um, for high-end kitchens, we see devices that are essentially looking at, look like they should be in a commercial kitchen, right. where their air flow's are yeah, several hundred CFM, maybe six, seven hundred cubic feet per minute. So like five times or six times what the minimum is. Um, and that, that all seems like, hey, that should be awesome, right? Because now I'm going to get really good capture efficiency and all that sort of stuff. Which could be true, uh, but you pay a price in terms of noise for a start. These tend to be noisy to move all that air. And the fact that all that air has to come out into your house somewhere else, right? It's all the air that goes out comes in somewhere. Right. And at the very high flow rates, that can be a difficult thing to manage for your home. And so you can easily run into comfort issues, for example, if you live somewhere cold and it's wintertime, all that extra cold air coming in has to be heated, which is, you know, gonna cost you some energy. And if if you have what we call makeup air, which is a deliberate duct to bring that air in. You have to be careful about where that air comes in because if you don't heat it up in the winter, you get a horrible cold draft on people. So these very high-end, very fancy, high-airflow devices bring a whole world of problems with them that currently the industry is not dealing with very well, I would say. And, we, and it's important when you're picking these things to be aware that it's not so simple as buying the biggest thing you can and turning it on. Uh, there are other consequences that we have to deal with when, when we do that. That's only for these very large, very high-end devices. For your more typical uh, thing that you might put in your kitchen, uh, those high air flows are less of a concern because they simply don't move that much air.
0: Right, compared to the overall building size.
1: or Correct, yes. Well, it's not so much building size. It it has to do with things like, if you live in a very energy-efficient home, uh, they tend to have they tend to be what we call very airtight homes. In other words, they don't have very many leaks in the building to let air in or out. And if you have one of these very, very big exhaust fans, um, often they will actually move a lot less air than they say because it's simply so hard to suck the air in through the very tight shell of the home. And sometimes you also have concerns about... um, What about if you have a water heater in your house that takes its combustion air from your home? So this is not a sealed-off unit. It's not outside or in a garage or anything. It's actually in the home with you. And there are plenty of homes that have this, right? Um, If you exhaust too much, you might pull the uh, exhaust from the water heater into the house with you. So, you know, all of those combustion products that I talked about from the cooking from your water heater now coming in the house, which is, you know, water vapor and particles and and carbon dioxide and all, all sorts of stuff. So there are some issues there for, that, that we do have to think about if we install very, very large exhaust systems in homes that have what we call these natural draft combustion appliances uh, in the home with them. I will say, though, that, they, that there are uh, tests you can do to make sure that... Um, those devices are, are not o- overpowering the uh, ability of your, say, water heater to draft properly. Um, organizations like the Building Performance Institute and others have got you know, test, test protocols to, to evaluate this sort of thing. But, but again, I, I would argue for keeping your life simple and not buying a gigantic hood with a lot of flow and going with something more moderate.
0: Right, yeah. And actually, it's uh, interesting anecdotally, uh, obviously, but I'm up in Vermont. Uh, this week and we uh have a lot of fireplaces, and the we actually oh, had yeah. a situation the other night where the fireplace was running and somebody uh, went into the bathroom and turned the fan on that's integrated with the light switch, and it there was a series of circumstances that made it such that um, we backdrafted from the the fireplace and smoke kind of came into the room so um,
1: yes it's 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 a real issue right. and it can happen and we sh- we should avoid it if we can and again right. I-, I think this is an argument for using a more moderate airflow yeah. for your kitchen range if you can and i realize that sometimes these are lifestyle decisions not building science decisions <laughs> and who am i to decide i can only i can only advise people <laughs> to avoid bad situations
0: Right, of course. It's, it's one perspective of the whole construction game.
1: Well, I mean, this is often the case when we, we talk about people's homes, is that a lot of the things in a home are, are interlinked in these ways, right? That the uh, the exhaust from the kitchen does great things to get rid of the contaminants in the kitchen, but we have to make sure we're not messing up the home somewhere else.
0: Right, that's an excellent point, thinking about the everything that you're doing in the home as a, a full system and what's the impact on the whole system
1: That's right. Your house your house is a system is sort of uh, something we often say. Yeah.
0: And uh, and we're the building doctors or something.
1: <laughs> Possibly. And any as any good doctor, we always have to firstly do no harm, right? We have to make sure the things we do don't end up making things worse. Right. but It's a it's an important, thing. but 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 generally for, for most for most circumstances, your your a moderately sized kitchen exhaust hood is is not going to create very many problems in your home, unless and and I, as I say there are exceptions, but um, you know some of this is becoming less in, less important. Um, I, th- this might be an aside, but it's certainly worth thinking about in that most high performance homes these days they don't have these uh, gas fueled appliances that are actually using the air from the house. They're either using what we call sealed combustion, uh, and most high-efficiency furnaces, they're taking their combustion air from outside through its own little duct. It gets burned, and then the flue goes back outside again, and that furnace isn't communicating with your home in any way. And so it doesn't really matter very much if you depressurize the house with an exhaust fan because that furnace is not communicating with the home. Or, or if you have a, an all-electric home with, say, heat pumps for heating and cooling and for, and for, for hot water then again, you don't have to worry about it. But, but, but you crazy folks who want to burn wood in a fireplace. <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> I mean, there are, there are solutions there too. I mean, again, in a, a, a high-performance home, a, a good idea is to have what we call a, a sealed fireplace, right. right? Where, again, the fireplace is taking its combustion air from outside, burning the wood, and then the, you know, the smoke and everything goes back outside again. And it's not communicating with your home and often these things will have—they have, you know, a nice glass front on them, so you can see the flames and the warmth comes through. But um, you couldn't reach out your hand and touch the flames. Right. But older homes, you know, like the one I live in, I don't have that. Right. I just have an open fireplace. Of course, I live in California, so I can't use it very often. But you know.
0: Yeah, you take those your are great chances. points. So, circling us back to the uh, the kitchen a little bit, and because I think that this is actually of interest yeah. to a lot of people. Um, and not exactly kitchen hood exhaust, but uh, the cooker itself. So can you talk a little bit about our cooktop options and what your thoughts are on those?
1: Definitely. So, so they broadly fall into three categories if you want to do some cooking, right? There is um, a gas burner. Um, there's what we call an electric resistance element. That's usually the spiral thing you can see that glows red hot. And the, th- the third one is what's called an, an induction cooktop where there's nothing that gets hot and instead um, an induction field is induced in your metallic cook pot and the pot is heated directly rather than having gas be burned or, or a hot spiral element. And they, they are quite a bit different in terms of what happens when you turn them on. And the gas cooking is the one that produces the most contaminants, because when you burn natural gas, you get a lot of water vapor, which you need to control. Um, There are also lots of particles generated, which are a health concern. Oxides of nitrogen, again, are a health concern, and possibly some other uh, volatile organic compounds that come from the combustion process. And so there's there's more contaminants produced by the gas cooking than the other ways. So the the hot electric element is sort of halfway in between. It, it, we're not burning anything anymore, so we don't actually produce any water vapor or oxides of nitrogen. But you never can get those heating elements so clean that they don't emit some particles. And they're not, it's not, the particle emission is not as high as burning the natural gas, but there's still plenty of small particles emitted when you use electric cooking. And finally, the, the induction cooktop because effectively, there isn't something that's super-duper hot. You need heat to volatilize things to create the particles. It creates by far the least particles. It doesn't create any water vapor, no oxides of nitrogen. So if you're looking to cook in a in a healthy way that isn't healthy because the food you're cooking is healthy, but because you're not putting contaminants in the air, an induction cooked up is definitely the way to go. Um, in all our testing and testing that other people have done, induction cooking is definitely quote-unquote, the cleanest. There is one other thing to think about, though, and that is the oven. And we don't really have induction ovens, per se. right? They're usually either uh, electric or gas. And again, you sort of have the same breakdown where gas is going to produce the most particles and, and so on, and, and the electric uh, less so. Um, they te- They can be a little trickier when we're thinking about venting. The the when we talk about the capture efficiency for hoods, we're just looking at what happens on the cooktop. We we have not looked at uh, including in the rating what happens from the oven, and some of that is because the way the ovens are vented um, depends on a lot on the particular construction of the oven you're using or or the range that you're using and where the hot air comes out. Sometimes it's at the back, sometimes at the front, sometimes it's a bit of both. Um, and so there's, it, it, it was sort of hard to standardize a way to think about capturing from the, from the oven. But even if you're not using the cooktop and you're baking some bread or something, it's still a good idea to turn on your exhaust hood because you're still getting contaminants emitted into your kitchen. Maybe not as not much as a very, very hot stir fry, right? But they're still there and you should still vent them.
0: Great. That's a good and
1: point. maybe you just you just leave it on low or something right and, and 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 do that so it's it's an important point to notice that you know when you're cooking in the oven things get emitted too and the last thing I'll say about this is sometimes in very very fancy high-end kitchens you might have multiple ovens and maybe you have a cooktop with an oven underneath it with a hood over it but on the wall next to it is a second oven well it's not underneath the um Range hood anymore, but that's okay because once again, turning your range hood on, it's also ventilating the whole kitchen, right? And it's stopping the pollutants from traveling from your kitchen to other places in the home because the you know as you exhaust out of the kitchen, the air has to come from somewhere, and that airflow into the kitchen tends to control the transport of these contaminants around your house, and so. Even if what you're doing isn't directly under the hood, when you turn on the hood, you're still sucking air out of the kitchen, ventilating the kitchen and and removing those contaminants. It's not as efficient as it is when it's directly over the cooktop, but it's still something that's worthwhile. And and indeed, there are many uh, other kitchen ventilation approaches that, that don't use a range hood per se, right? Sometimes there's just a fan in the wall or a fan in the ceiling that exhausts the whole room. And again, they work. They're just not as efficient as, as, as a range hood. And in order to get to the same levels of con- contaminants in the kitchen, if you just generally ventilate in the kitchen, you have to ventilate a lot more than if it's just a range hood. And and so those they're less effective, but they're, they it's not like it has zero effect.
0: Right. Great point. Yeah. So. Thank you. I think there's a lot of key takeaways here. I-, I would say some of my top ones are, um, number one, use your exhaust fan. Number two, uh, yes. if you vent it to the outside directly. And my number three is I should get an induction stove so I can make a bacon cheeseburger and call it healthy cooking.
1: <laughs> um, I wouldn't. I'm not sure I'm going to agree completely with your point number three about whether what you're eating is healthy. But in yeah. terms of what you're emitting and what you're breathing, it might it might be slightly healthier. Yes, and you know I, the, I'm I'm not against gas cooking. I cook with gas myself, right? But I use my range hood a lot. Okay. And and I understand that that there are people that have they love to cook and they have an affinity for using gas. And I'm Never going to tell them to not do it, right? Um, but I'm going to tell them, you know, the air in your kitchen is going to have less contaminants in it if you use the induction. I mean, I think my next cooktop will be induction, even though I like to cook a lot.
0: All right, good to know. So um, if we, we like to ask this, if we have you back on the podcast in five years, maybe 10 years, what will we be talking about then, besides how awesome your induction cooktop is?
1: I think we were talking about a a couple of things. The the first one, or maybe three, let's go through them one at a time. I think that the design of range hoods is going to get better. And by that I mean we'll get the same amount of the contaminants captured and exhausted from the kitchen at a lower airflow. And I I like that because it means it'll be quieter, which means people are much more likely to use their hoods. And um, it means that if we move less air, that's less air we have to heat up or cool down, you know, that goes in and out of the house. And so that would be a, a, that's going to be something that I think we're going to see uh, the range of manufacturers looking into. The next thing is, is, is automation, which is, you know, we made this point about range only works if it's turned on, right? But once we have got good designs that capture well and aren't noisy because they move less air or else they're better aerodynamic designs, then I think we can move down the path of let's automate these devices so they will sense that you're cooking and turn on automatically. And they're likely to turn on at, at a low airflow and there'll be a switch that you as the cook can still use. Like if you if you start to burn something, you could turn it on to high, right? But they're going to automatically operate. So it's not dependent on on the cook to turn it on. It's going to be automatic. And the, autom- the automation is an extension of there are some high-end hoods out now that have uh, what I would call an emergency switch in them. If they get very, very hot, they're intended to detect a cooktop fire and go into high speed. It's a, it's a safety thing. And those controls and control strategies are going to get adapted to be more sensitive and use some different ways of sensing the cooking, not just the temperature of the air, but maybe some infrared sensing and things like that. And we're going to automate um, range hoods. and I, And I think that sort of performance improvement and automation are going to be the the two big changes uh, that, that we see in sometime in the next five years. These things are going to become relatively mainstream.
0: Okay, that sounds great. You did mention three things that, at first. Do you have a, a third, or are we going to have to wait and see?
1: There is a third one, and th- this is something that, that may be a bit of a, a stretch, and that is that... Um, there are some applications where people would like to recirculate. And the reason why I'd, I was going to say it as third and then, then I, I changed my mind. The reason why I changed my mind is that um, I understand that with these devices, you could certainly put in a good particle filter to remove the particles. You could put some uh, active charcoal carbon filters in there to remove some of the VOCs. But you're still going to have a hard time with uh, removing the water vapor right? And that's always going to be an issue if you cook a lot, you know, and you don't want condensation, and we don't want higher moisture levels in our homes. And it also has the issue of it's really, really relying on the homeowner to regularly change out all those filters. And from what we know from how people use their homes, in particular, looking at how often people change the filters in their heating and cooling systems we're pretty sure we can't rely on people to do that. So there, this, this is a third option, and it's being investigated mostly for like super-duper, super-tight homes where they want to keep the heat in. Um, if you're familiar with uh, the, the passive house system where houses are very, very airtight and they are doing an amazing job of controlling all the heat flows, right? In the winter, they want to keep the cooking heat in the house as heat because they don't want to turn on a heating system. Right. And so they would like to have recirculating systems that allowed them to do that, but I think there's there's still you know a couple of really serious issues with those. Before I would be comfortable in in recommending them, so they they could be the third thing. And there's certainly a, a bunch of uh, work being done right now on how do we improve the filtration of these things, um, how good a filter do we need, and and so on. Uh, but like I said, that they have a couple of key drawbacks, which is they they don't remove the moisture and. They do require a lot of maintenance. That means that they—I are uh, won't say they're terrible. I'm just not their biggest fan.
0: <laughs> right. That sounds great. So maybe we'll put that on the ten-year horizon and we'll check uh, check what they've got going on then.
1: <laughs> maybe we'll see.
0: Well, I definitely. I, I
1: I just I just always I just always prefer simpler things <sighs> because they're harder to break, right? And you know, you, you want to you buy something that's going to work for at least 10 years, right? And so the idea of, you know, robust things that don't require you to maintain them all the time seem like they're much, much more likely to be working in 10 years.
0: That's an excellent point. And I think it is a good end note. So I want to thank you so much for your time today um, and for coming on the podcast and coordinating uh, this remote recording with our team. Uh, thank you so much, Ian.
1: Well, thank you, Kelly. I'm happy to talk about these things, as you can probably tell.
0: Great. We'll have you back on soon.
1: All right. Thanks, Kelly.
0: Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. For more information about the topics discussed today, visit www.swinter.com podcast and check out the episode show notes. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We provide energy, green building, and accessibility consulting services to improve the built environment. Our professionals have led the way since 1972 in the development of best practices to achieve high-performance buildings. Our production team for today's episode includes Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and myself, Heather Breslin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.